The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so good afternoon, everybody. I'm glad so many of you could come out on Easter. And uh, a remote apology to everybody that it didn't work for. (laughs) So... uh, We have two guest speakers today, um, Uri Silberstein and Diana Clark, that uh, we're very fortunate to have. Uri has been a mentor in the program for about three years, and uh, he lives in northern Washington, so he happens to be down here for a few days, so we got him to come and talk to us today. And uh, I know he's a graduate of the chaplaincy program, and I'm not sure what else, but longtime practitioner. You can say more if you want to. (laughs) Diana is a mainstay of IMC. She just finished a master's degree in Buddhist studies recently, and she's, uh, did you do the chaplaincy program? I think probably done most of the programs. (laughs) Anyway, and so we're very fortunate to have both of them today. So, thanks. Can I add just a little bit? That um, I first met you, Uri, I remember... After we had both sat, uh, was it two months or sat one month? I sat for a month. Yeah. yeah, it's something special happens when you sit a long retreat with other people, even though you're in silence and you don't really talk to one another. There's something kind of little bond that forms. So uh, it's nice to be sitting up here next Great. to you, Uri. It's nice for me as well. Thanks, Diana. And uh, nice to see everybody and to be here with everybody. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, I'll just do a quick uh, review. Um, the Eightfold Path uh, is a path of practice, um, which Gil likes to talk a lot about. Just He loves the fact that it is a path. It kind of defines it. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, something we engage in, something we interact with. It's not a trail map on the wall. It's a path we are walking. Um, whose goal, if I can be so bold, is to lead to freedom through eliminating the cause of suffering, namely clinging. And it's taught sequentially, although that's not necessarily how we experience it. In fact, in my experience, it's not at all how I experience it. My day-to-day experience doesn't go in these eight steps in this order all the time. They overlap, they impact each other, they move back and forth. In fact, I have one teacher from early on, the first time I encountered the Eightfold Path, who each time he teaches one path factor, he shows how if you look at it in the right way, it includes all seven of the others. And I won't begin to try to do that. Um, but, but it's really lovely when, when, when uh, we begin to see pieces of one path or, uh, in another. And they're broken into groups of three. The first group, um, I think of it as the, the proper setup, are the first two factors. It's right view. Where are we going? We're moving towards freedom. And there's four noble truths that are very useful towards that goal. And right intention. And they make up the first, what I call the, or, or, the orienting section. And then we have the three that make up sila, or virtue, or ethics. Basically how we interact with each other, and to some degree with ourselves and with other beings. Um, speech, action, and livelihood. Um, incidentally, we, we say right speech. That's kind of the colloquial way we describe it. Uh, I always think of it as beneficial, uh, and beneficial specifically towards the goal of being happy, of being free from suffering. 
So the speech, the action, the livelihood that helps us to reflect on how are we in the world, how are we interacting with other people. And then we encounter the last three, which I think of as as the inner work. Um, Right effort, um, which was the last month. And just to summarize briefly, it's the effort that we undertake to help bring about skillful states, those that reduce suffering, and to sustain skillful states, and to be rid of, eliminate unskillful states that have arisen, and to avoid the arising of unskillful states that have not yet arisen. Um, And so right mindfulness, which we'll talk about today, is a really nice... um, uh, it easily transitions because if we think about right effort, right, and think that we'd like to do this, we'd like to f- figure out what do we do to have these four things happen, bring about that which, which is beneficial and, and sustain it and eliminate uh, the arising or the presence of that which isn't. Um, in, in some ways, right mindfulness is how we put right effort into practice. Right mindfulness, depending on how you look at it, is either a tool that we use uh, or a state that is the byproduct of, uh, of, of our efforts. Um, and in either case, it allows us to, to see in a certain way uh, and to understand things in a certain way that brings about the reduction of those things that cause us to suffer and increases the things that allow us to be free and happy and easeful. Um, so that's, that's kind of all I want to say in introduction. Diana, do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, questions before we move on uh, about what you've encountered in the last month or about what little I've said so far about right mindfulness? So you've all got it all down. That's good. Yeah, great. Yes. Um, I have a question about... Can we ask you... Oh, yes. You Thank you, Diana. Um, just in thinking about the, um, the avoiding of the unskillful mm-hmm. states and just kind of trying to find that balance between like, oh, my God, I'm avoiding this. Like, I can't, like, meet this. And so... And then... Right, so to me that feels like then you're not cultivating this ability to kind of be with what is. And yeah, that. Great. So if I understand the question, it has to do with maybe, and if if this isn't how you meant it, please uh, tell me, I guess the difference between um, turning away from an unskillful state that's already arisen as a way of not fueling it versus not having it arise altogether. It's not how you asked it, but that's how I uh, understood it and so feel free to clarify that um well i i mean i think that's part of it but i was more thinking of it in terms of just the like preventing altogether Mm -hmm. like when you're like okay i'm not going to put myself in a situation that i know is Uh, going to cause some unskillful mind state to arise Mm -hmm. you know just where does avoiding become skillful and where does it become not skillful yep great that's a great question um, 
I would say um, for myself, it, it's almost a, um, the first time I learned it, it's too late to avoid it. You know, so I learn by experience. And what I do is I look at my being. And so if I, there's a situation that I might encounter or tend to encounter or know is there, if I, you know, if I walk into Baskin-Robbins and I'm allergic to dairy and I'm also addicted to ice cream, none of which is true, but it's a nice <laughs> example that came to my mind. Um, well, maybe I'm addicted at times to ice cream. Um, you know, so, so I go through and I check with myself. You know, what, so I, I had some role, maybe I don't even know I did, but what's my state? You know, is it fueling mindfulness and ease and well-being or not? And so it's almost like a reflective, oh, well, these things tend to cause states that are unskillful, uh, not unpleasant. Some of them, you know, they, they don't, I, don't try, I try not to confuse the two. Um, and so it's almost reflective looking back. Um, and the other thing is that at times it's really a... a, a we're not sure until it's, you know, it's too late, so to speak. Am I avoiding this? Or am I being wise? In, in... So if it's already there, right? If like, I already feel the fear or the anxiety, and I decide I'm going to avoid it and pretend it's not there, then that's, for me, not skillful. But um, if I see uh, overscheduling myself tends to cause anxiety, um, I might choose to schedule myself less less fully so does that does that help is that yeah i mean i think it's just all about finding feeling into it yourself um but that was just something that kind of came up of like where am i not increasing my capacity to like potentially be with things that might be unpleasant Yeah. yeah and where am i being wise you want to add anything to that Maybe I'll just um, add, I think that we can trust that we have a lot of wisdom. That we can notice, like, oh, I'm avoiding, but somehow this isn't leading towards more freedom, more ease. Or I'm avoiding, and this is helping me have a little more freedom and ease and happiness. So sometimes we can just trust that. Any other questions? Yes. Do we have another mic, actually? No. Oh. Oh, thanks, Chris. We'll give that one to Diana. Yeah. Don't, don't you just kind of run into a, a problem where you're avoiding things and uh, just running away all the time because you're so afraid of your anxiety? Um, I, I expect there'd be a tipping point there somewhere. Um, yes. So, so and, that's, and I have to be careful. I have to be careful. Am I... Um, trying to avoid situations in which anxiety will arise to the point where it's, it's just always dormant, but it's never been seen. Um, fortunately or unfortunately for me, there's no shortage of things that cause my anxiety to arise. So I know I'm going to encounter it if it needs to be seen. Um, and sometimes it just arises spontaneously on the cushion, and I don't even know what it's coming from. And in those times, I, I turn to it. As Jack Kornfeld once said, when all other, it was restfulness for him, when all other tactics failed him to try to avoid his restlessness he just opened up and said so help me if i die of restlessness i'm going to die of restlessness and he just opened up and said what is the experience of restlessness you know in the body in the mind right now um, so i certainly uh, I do that 
I have done that a lot with anxiety. Um, and it seems to make it more navigable when it comes up off the cushion. Um, but I think you're right. We have to be careful. You know, are we trying to uh, construct our lives and control everything in such a way to avoid that which we don't want to experience? Um, and that will ultimately not work as a long-term strategy, although sometimes it works short-term. So um, we'll do a, a brief guided sit now. And um, I'm going to invite something during the sit that if you're sitting feels settled and useful and what I'm saying doesn't seem useful, just ignore it. Um, uh, and, and I mean that, seriously. I, I'm offering something that if it's useful, great. And if you have a practice and during the next 15 minutes or so, it feels better to tune me out, uh, I, want, I want your practice to be beneficial, uh, and I have no agenda to whether what I'm playing with is useful. So just uh, take a moment to be aware that you're here in a body, on a seat, in a space. Feel contact with the seat or the hands. And then in whatever way it's easy to connect, be aware of what it feels like in the body for breathing to be occurring. Notice that the attention has wandered. Just gently notice that. Oh, the attention has wandered. And remind yourself to ask, what does it feel like to experience breathing in the body? And just gently bring your attention back to the sensations of breathing. for the next little while whenever you notice that the mind has wandered it doesn't matter what it's wandered to for now just bring the attention gently back to the sensations of breathing
if it's helpful to just give a one-word note to how the mind wandered before returning to the breath, then do that. Sound. Back to the breathing. Thought. Go back to the breathing. Sensation. And then just gently let the attention rest on the sensations of breathing. Now, in whatever way feels simple, see if you can widen the awareness. Make the awareness a little bit more spacious. And rather than turning back to the breath, it's okay if something else is more interesting or compelling, but know what it is. And if it's interesting, bring your attention to it for as long as it's interesting or until the mind wanders, at which point you can gently bring the attention back to the breath. If you notice the mind wanting something, you can note wanting. Or not wanting, you can note not wanting. Or a particular emotion, note what it is. And if that seems like enough, just continue to do that and work with the breath. And if you'd like to play with it a little bit, one particular way that can be useful 
if there's a strong emotion or a strong thought pattern, maybe there's wanting or there's worrying or planning or there's a particular emotion, happiness or frustration or excitement. When you notice it, the instruction I'm offering, and I will explain it, is to drop the content and to feel what it's like in the body to experience whatever it is that's arisen. So if it's a thought or an emotion, drop the story and ask yourself, how does it feel in the body right now to experience this thing? And there's no right way to do that. It's whatever you feel in your body that's the answer to that question. And sometimes it's very easy to just feel what that's like. And other times, our mind wants to pull us away. So for some people it can be useful, as it is for me at times, to gently ask some questions of myself that help keep the attention on the experience in the body. So per perhaps, for example, I have restlessness but it doesn't matter what it is. And I ask myself, what does it feel like in the body right now to experience restlessness? And I just tune into the body as a whole and I notice it's like this. And at times it might be useful for me to ask, is there a particular place or section of my body where I feel this right now. And I gently let the attention tell me if there is. To encourage the attention to stay with the feeling in the body, I might ask, was it towards the skin and the surface or was it deeper inside in the body? And I just notice which one it is. There's no right answer. Is there a defined shape or is it more of a vague area? Is it a defined border or no? It's not really a fine border. Does it stay in one spot? kind of solid, or is there some movement to it? Is it dense and tight, or is it a little bit loose and spacious? Is it staying the same, or is it changing? particular shape 
Does it feel like a form or more like energy? Does it move to other parts or stay in the same spot or general area? And these are just ways to help the attention stay on the experience in the body. There's no right answer. And sometimes the sensations just fade or dissipate. Sometimes the mind goes back to the thinking or emotion part of it outside the body or seemingly removed from the body and I have to gently remind myself, oh, I'm thinking about that restlessness now. What is it like to feel it in the body right now? Just in this moment, oh, it's like this. seems confusing or in any way not simple to do or you're not sure what to do you can either say oh confusion how does confusion feel in the body right now it feels like this or it's always wise to simply go back to the sensations of breathing if nothing else seems clear, nothing else seems to be calling the attention. Breathing in the body, it's like this. It feels like this.
opening your eyes after a sit and noticing again you're in a room full of people. It's like this. So I'm going to talk a little bit, 15 minutes or so, 15, 20 minutes, and then uh, we'll do some, uh, some breakout sessions, some discussions, just to kind of let you know what's going on. So I uh, thought it might be useful for the topic of right mindfulness to throw out a definition or two of mindfulness. Um, John Kabat-Zinn, the founder of Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, who, um, if you don't know, or even if you do know, was actually a Vipassana student for many, many years. And he took the traditional Vipassana instructions and kind of extracted the Buddha references out of them so that they would be useful to a, a broader audience. That's a simple way of defining what he did. But he calls mindfulness, quote, mindfulness can be thought of as moment-to-moment non-judgmental awareness cultivated by paying attention in a specific way, that is, in the present moment, as non-reactively and as open-heartedly as possible. Jack Kornfeld defines it this way, an innate human capacity to deliberately pay full attention to where we are to our actual experience, and to learn from it. And in his definition, what I particularly like about that is it's an innate human capacity to pay attention, and it's an innate human capacity to learn from it. We all have this ability. Um, It needs to be cultivated or encouraged or teased out different ways and different times. And that's one of the things that meditation does. Um, the Buddha, from what I'm told, um, by a man named Gil Fransdale, um, actually talks more about mindfulness as a state, a state of being, rather than something that we do, which I find to be very interesting. And we tend to use the term also to mean the practice which cultivates this state or teases out this state or enhances this ability. Um, So I like to think of it as both because we talk about doing mindfulness, but in a sense, we could also think we're doing those things that increase the likelihood that the state of mindfulness, whether for a moment or a continuation of time, arises. And regardless of how we define it, right mindfulness or beneficial mindfulness then would be that mindfulness which leads to happiness, which helps us to see the causes of our suffering and allows us to become free of these causes. So specifically, the way I think of it, clinging is the main cause of my suffering when I hold on to something. And although there's many ways to look at it, one particular way to look at clinging is that It comes because we don't see and fully understand the impermanence of everything. Because if we did, we'd know that we're we're grabbing something that's not going to be there. 
we're clinging at it, and it's just, it's not enduring, it's not going to last. And the impermanence of things, seeing that clearly, helps us to understand that it, it is dissatisfying. You know, for me to have a rose, and I love this rose, and I want this rose to be there forever, and I put it on my desk, and I put a little thing of water, and I'm of the opinion that my happiness is tied to this rose being here, and you know, maybe I'm lucky, maybe it stays for weeks, but eventually that rose, the petals are going to fall off. It's not going to stay, stay alive in the bud bays. And if my happiness was dependent on that rose being there, and I was not tuned to the impermanence of that rose, I would feel extremely dissatisfied. I'd feel let down, I'd be frustrated, I wouldn't understand. But I know. I know roses don't stay on the desk in a bud vase forever. Uh, We talk about the three characteristics of phenomena. It's impermanent, it's unsatisfying, and it doesn't have a fixed, substantial, unchanging thing we can point to and say this is the self. And for me, a lot of my practice has been impermanence. And impermanence is sort of a doorway at times to seeing the other two. So I'm going to tend to focus a little bit more on impermanence than on dissatisfaction or non-self. And it's a personal bias based on my experience. Tomorrow that could change, but right now that's where it is. So if we really see impermanence, we really integrate it into our being. Okay, if we see personally, if I really, 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 bless you, deeply comprehended the impermanence of everything around me, I would never cling. I mean, I just wouldn't, right? I mean, I know these things are rising and passing away. Doesn't mean I don't connect. It doesn't mean I don't want. Okay, you know, I I, I love the people in my life to live forever. I, you know, or maybe I would. I mean, today, the ones I'm getting along with, um. But, but uh, you know, I, I know on some level that's not going to happen. And the more clearly we see that everything in its own way is impermanent, we don't have to actually make an effort not to cling to it. We can be with it, but we understand, yes, this is here for a time, just like us. We're here for a time. And it's kind of like, it's a byproduct of seeing clearly this notion of, oh, this is not permanent. Oh, I I don't need to hold to it tightly because doing so will cause some suffering. I can still appreciate it and be with it and connect with it. And it's like not touching the hot stove, okay? You know, I don't know about you, but I don't ever remember touching the hot stove as a kid. I'm sure I was like, you know, guided to have my hand near it. But if I did do it, you know, I wouldn't have to think, hmm, I better sit down and memorize this lesson. It's just, it becomes instinctive. Oh, I touch the stove, I burn myself. Oh, things are impermanent. When I grab them, there's unnecessary suffering. There's unnecessary pain and stress and unease. And we just know it from having understood it at a, a, an instinctive level. Some, some say, I have one... Uh, teacher I sat with uh, early on in my exposure to the Dharma who used to say, when you see things clearly, you don't even have to know you're seeing them clearly. You're changed on a cellular level and it'll work itself out. All you need to do is just keep paying attention. And I don't think that's always true, but it's nice to know that if I'm practicing regularly but still feel like I'm zoning out a little bit, you know, 
if I can go back. Well, I'm still being changed on a cellular level, even if I spaced out for a bit. Classically, um, they talk about, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness, the four things that we can use to help cultivate mindfulness, to help increase the likelihood that the state of mindfulness arises, that through this state, we see things arising and passing. We begin to understand that's the nature of all things. And we just don't want to cling anymore. It doesn't mean joy goes away or connection goes away or happiness you know, that we get from being with others and with other things goes away. It just means that we don't cling to it in the same way. And I think of the four foundations in, in, in some ways um, as, as the, different, uh, the, the different classical things we can use to cultivate mindfulness. And it doesn't matter, there isn't a preference for which of these we use. There are almost, in my experience, things to try and see what resonates. Um, they are the body, mindfulness of the body, which I'll talk a little bit more about, and uh, mindfulness of feelings. Uh, by that they mean the Vedanas, the sense of what's pleasant and unpleasant. Mindfulness of mental formations, which... I'm coming to learn basically is almost everything else that's not <laughs> a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or a sense of body experience. All my thoughts and emotions and mood states and all that's things that are formed in the mind. And the fourth one is called the dhammas, which um, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi calls phenomena. Uh, in, um, Gil recently in a talk said, I don't think we should translate the word damas from Pali, but if I were going to, I'd say truth. So uh, uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. But there are different objects, different things that we can turn our attention to and learn to see clearly and to use this attention to help increase the likelihood that the state of mindfulness and clear seeing arises. And it, uh, the analogy I like to use sometimes is, is that of lifting weights. Okay, If I want to strengthen my arm, and I decide that you know, using a five or an eight pound weight and doing 10 reps is a good way to do it, okay? to exercise, flex that muscle, it doesn't matter. Let's say it's five pounds. It doesn't matter if I use a five pound brick, if I use a five pound little, little weight, if I use a five pound bag of apples. It's almost secondary to the fact that I'm strengthening that muscle, you know, making that muscle become stronger so that it's easier to use. So in some ways, I think of what we pay attention to, if it helps us to stay attentive, it's, it's the right weight for us at that time. And the muscle of seeing clearly and knowing that, seeing that things arise, that they're there for a while and they pass away, that muscle gets exercised till it becomes almost secondary. So no longer am I straining to try to lift five pounds I'm like, oh yeah, I can move that over there. And I don't even realize I've moved it. And I remember, oh, a long time ago, I could barely lift that bag. And I'm just kind of moving it around like, you know, it's, it's no big deal. In mindfulness of um, the body, uh, which I'll talk a little bit more about uh, uh, now, mindfulness of breathing is one way that that's done. Um, classically, uh, it's the way most of us first encounter meditation. Not, not, not everybody, but, but oftentimes. And here we... We, we, we use that kind of as a, as, a, as a staple in our practice. Classically, um, there are other objects um, that can be used for mindfulness of the body. 
The Buddha taught about mindfulness of posture, which I, I'm not going to go into these, but you can read a bit about them or ask about them later. Um, and that has to do with really the internal movements of the body, not just how am I holding myself, but what, what's happening inside, yeah, other than the breathing. Uh, they talk about noticing some of the physical characteristics of the body. Um, uh, and the, they use the classic uh, elements of earth, fire, water, and air to describe different ways in which we can experience what's happening inside the body. Movement, meditation would be included in that, changing sensations. Um, there's a, a, a teaching on breaking the body down to 32 parts or breaking the body down to 10 bodily processes. Um, so we can choose to focus on the sensations of breathing or on other bodily sensations. And when we focus, the closer that we look, the more mindful we can be of actually what we're seeing when we look closely, the more we see that they're not a fixed, solid thing. They arise, they're there for a while, and they pass away. They are impermanent. And it's good to know when that happens, even in a simple level. It's good to know, oh, you know, this is arising. Oh, and now it's here. And oh, it's shifting. And sometimes it's a minute later, oh, that, that's gone. I didn't even notice that that went. It's good to notice that too. But in many ways, it's, um, it, it, it's more important to see it and to observe it than it is to stop and analyze it and reflect on it. Because um, we're conditioning the mind, like the hot stove analogy. The more we're just present for when things arise and pass, the more innately we just know things arise and pass. Um, I've heard an analogy, um, I don't remember, it might have been Thailand, somewhere in Southeast Asia, and uh, a teacher was making the analogy between, and, and I'm not generalizing, it's not true of everybody, but their observation was when a natural disaster happens in the Western world, we respond, you know, rightfully so, but with, with you know, a, a really almost disbelief. You know, it's painful. You know, why would this happen? And it's almost like it's not supposed to happen. And there's certain places where this person has been, where natural disasters came. And it's not that they're that people are happy for them, but they say, "Yeah, well, of course, that's what happens. Storms arise, earthquakes arise, fires arise. It's just the nature of the world." Um, and and while certainly, uh, I'm not I'm not suggesting that people be uh, you know flippant about it. You know, but it increases our suffering when we have this underlying belief that it shouldn't happen. Okay, well, it's happening. So we can be where we are, which is this is happening, or we can stay back and it shouldn't be happening and never even encounter what's really happening. We're just stuck in the mode of this shouldn't be happening. And the more we look, the more we pay attention, it almost doesn't matter what we're paying attention to in some ways, the more we notice that things are arising and passing, the more this muscle gets flexed, we can look even more closely, the more second nature it becomes to understand that things are impermanent. And in some ways, almost effortlessly, we don't want to hold on. We don't want to. You know, it, just, it doesn't make sense. I, I don't want to put my hand on the stove. I'm not willing to test it one more time to see if I, maybe I won't get burned this time. And this applies equally, this noticing things arising, being present and passing away, and this is what 
trip me up for years. This applies equally to those experiences that are pleasant and those experiences that are unpleasant. Now, I thought for a long time, as many people do, that the purpose of meditation was to get pleasant states to arise, hang out with them as long as I could, and then shed a tear when they go away and then figure out how do I get the next one to come. Um, and then at some point I realized, oh, I can be present for the arising of something pleasant, watch it be there, watch it leave, and I can do that for something unpleasant. And if my well-being, my ease, my state of okayness is um, dependent on things being pleasant, I've just cut out at least half of my experience. Um, And so the situations in which I can feel free, at ease, peaceful, okay, increase tremendously if I'm willing to be present for that which is unpleasant as well and to find some sense of okayness in the arising and passing of unpleasant things. So the so that the, the other thing I want to mention about mindfulness of the body. So that there's the classic way of describing it um, that I've been talking about, and there's the slightly more westernized, almost uh, psychologically kind of focused way, which is kind of what I did in the guided meditation, uh, which is how it's often taught uh, in introductory classes in the vipassana world, um, where we stay with the breath, and then if something else arises, we turn to it. And if it's useful, which it often is, we go back to the body to experience what's arisen in the body. And as far as I know, and I'm not that well read, that's not a part of the classic instructions. But like many people, I found it extremely useful. And if you find it useful to be present for challenging things by coming into the body, I invite you to try that as a a practice. One of the things it does is it weakens the role of the mind and the thinking in the process. Okay, I, I figured out, I relearn it all the time, when I try to think myself out of a difficult state or difficult emotion, what I'm actually doing is perpetuating it because the thinking for me is one of the sources of the, of the um, agitation. So um, in, in anxiety or restlessness, which are two long-time now friends, <laughs> most of the time, but long-time uh, challenges for me um, and still certainly at times are um, experiencing things in the body are still experiencing them Um, when I'm not turning away from them because I'm not saying well how does it feel in the mind If, if it's useful to do that I do that but for me it's easier to do it in the body and the analogy um that I keep really close to heart is um that when something arises repeatedly in our practice, you know, maybe you know, like there's a noise that goes by and we can say noise, we can go back to the breath. But if it comes up over and over again, uh, if something happens over and over again, uh, something that we think really is a challenge for us, the analogy I use is that it's, on some level, inside of us, there's something that we're not willing to be present for. And it's like a, an infant that is well-fed and has enough sleep but is still crying. And really, all it needs is attention. It needs to be held. I see you. I know you're there and it's okay. I know you're cranky. It's okay to be cranky. I know you're restless. And we don't have to go looking for a fix. We just need to be present. And the same is true for those parts of ourselves that we may not want to be present for. They'll keep whining, crying, twisting, being restless, whatever it is. 
And eventually, if we are comfortable and willing to just say, okay, I see you, restlessness. I'm just going to let you be there. I'm not going to try to change you. I'm not going to try to fix you. I'm just going to be present for you. Over time, it's not a magic instant thing, but over time, it softens. Because on some level, all it wants is to know that, yes, this part of you is also allowed to be there. And if it doesn't think it's allowed to be there, it's going to whine and scream more. And once it knows over time that it's really okay that it's there, it mellows out. And the analogy I use, I talk a lot about it because it's so present for me, I, I don't know that like the seed of anxiety arises less frequently in my experience, but when it does arise, like you know, if it pops up to the surface, more often than it used to, I say, oh yeah, there's anxiety. And it's almost like it's saying, okay, cool, you see me. Okay, and it just kind of goes away. It's like just wants to make sure it's still okay with me that it's there. It doesn't need to do its whole dance routine. You know, it, it knows I know it's there and it just wants to know that it's okay. And I can't really explain that except that it's just is one of those um, byproducts of paying attention that the thing that I'm paying attention to over time seems to soften uh, in, in, in its strength. In some ways, I see the impermanence there. Right? I see if I've sat with it long enough, I see that it's not. You know, I actually am able to get up and make a meal. I'm not overwrought all the time with with whatever comes up. There's impermanence there. There's lack of solidity, and I'm less threatened by it when I see it rear its head. It's like, yeah, I've been with this a million times. Maybe it'll ruin my day. Maybe it won't. I don't know this time. But you know, it, it, it's more and more workable and less and less threatening the more I'm willing to be with it. And it's kind of a paradox. Uh, the very things that we think we're trying to get over are the very things oftentimes that we need to be present for in order to be able to be at ease with them. Um, And it's not that they don't arise. Maybe they arise less frequently. It depends on the day. But they're not crying to be seen anymore. They know I see them and they know on many levels I'm okay with them being there. And they don't need to arise. They don't become a preoccupation and a hook that takes me out of whatever else is going on. And even when they rear their heads a little bit, it's possible to be present for that. And it's very different for me to be anxious and lost in anxiety or worry or restlessness or planning or whatever it may be, or anger or whatever. Pick your, pick your poison. It's very different to be lost in it than it is to be, oh, here it is. You know, I'm relating to it. Oh, there it is, and here's me being aware of it. And on some level, at times, in the clearer moments, I see it's just phenomena arising and passing away. I didn't ask for this, and the way I know that is because I wouldn't have if I had a choice. It's not mine. I didn't choose for it to happen. And sometimes it's not even a problem. It's just there, and I don't have to entangle with it. And so at times we're able to be free even when unpleasant things arise or when we experience difficulty. And I think that's all I have to say about that for now. Um, So now we'll we'll do a a, a breakout session. Um, I'm looking at you, but actually I'm I'm doing this one, aren't I? I can if you do. Yeah, no, it's okay, yeah. Yeah.
so what we're going to do is break up into groups of four. Um, and I don't know how many we are, but if there's a, a, you know, a group that's up or down from that, it's okay. And um, we're going to do this in a specific way where we take turns just saying one or two very brief things about the topic. And we go around a number of times. And the reason we do that is because we actually can hear things other people say and build on it. And it actually allows us oftentimes to get somewhere in our thinking and in our, and in our, and in our exploration that we wouldn't have gotten if one person speaks for a quarter of the time and an extra quarter of the time. And if there's a story involved in what you're saying, it's not important that your groupmates know the story. If you know it, that's all. Just kind of summarize what, what, what it is um, that you've gotten. And the question is, what wisdom have you learned from listening or tuning in to your body? It's a broad, on or off the cushion, doesn't matter. Um, and um, so let's, uh, let's break up into groups and then I'll, I'll, I'll give the instruction from there. Um, so just turn to the people around you and uh, find four people. And if there aren't people around you, walk up towards Diana and I and you'll see other people who are looking for a group too. So uh, we good? So uh, it, it, would, it would be interesting to hear uh, those of you who are willing to share what, uh, what you came up with. What wisdom have you learned from listening to your body? And, and maybe I'll add, you could also share, like, what was that experience of sharing like? Great. What was it like to be in the group and to talk about uh, the wisdom that you've seen with your body? So either of those things you can share. And we have a blue microphone right back there. So, uh oh, you touched it. So now. (laughs) (laughs) So, by paying attention to the feelings, you don't, there's not, it doesn't require that um, a consequence of our conversation doesn't require that you know why the feeling arose or even what the feeling is, only that you've had this feeling in your body that's strong. And it may, you may or may not be able to connect it to an event or, 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 because uh, there's this strong, because to try to sort through it and figure it out is the mind. Um, thinking and not useful, much more important to just know the feeling and collect what you know over time. Thank you. Oh, we talked about how different parts of our body felt the pain, our emotional pain, and uh, we talked about how we could see over the over. Uh, the time of our lives that a collection of uh, emotional suffering had uh, revealed itself in our physical ailments and Mm. and illnesses and how we've been able to some of us have been able to work through those to to discover that it's our emotion that our emotions responses to our emotions had caused those physical illnesses and we talked about the different ways that we we respond then to um our bodies, 
when they feel um, tense um, and unhealthy and the healthy ways of responding to our bodies. Great. Thank you. And one thing that just came to mind, how this all kind of interrelates, is you know one thing that I brought up in our little discussion was when I feel some anxiety rising, I sit with it because it's, it's what I fear. And then I realize that no storm lasts forever. And this too shall pass. And this kind of goes to what you brought up earlier of how, how do you deal with when you want to avoid something? Maybe just by sitting there and realizing, okay, I know I want to avoid this, but this too shall pass. And if I sit with it, the avoidance will be less and less and less. Um, in our group, I had the experience of universality that, you know, we all go through these things and have reactions. Sometimes they're reactions that run off what happens to other people, and then you kind of carry the energy and get your own reaction. And um, for myself, I I think that, as one group member said, my body <laughs> usually helps me through when I go back to the body and to the feelings in the body. And um, and I find that over and over that if I, like you said, Uri, that if you try and think it through, then you get more and more <laughs> caught up in it. So if I go back to the feeling underneath it, like agitation or fear, or some of the major f- um, feelings that arise for me, then I somehow can watch it rise and fall away. So there's a lot of wisdom there. I'd like to say something. Thank you, Edna, for pointing out kind of this uh, universality of it. It's a part of our common humanity. It's part of what uh, links us together as our experiences in the bodies, what others experience too. And that can help lead to compassion and care and all kinds of good, wonderful things. So thank you, Edna. As we were talking, as I was thinking, um, sometimes it's easier for me to see what I'm feeling and then notice where it is in my body, that the body reactions and the feelings um, are pretty closely tied. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have one body reaction that I experienced this afternoon, and that is it's really hard for me to stay awake at this time in the afternoon. My, <laughs> You know, my body's just saying sleep, and um, so. And, and and it's okay when that happens to actually say, "Oh, this is the feeling of thinking I'm about to fall asleep." You know, this too. It doesn't have to be uh, the one thing that's not okay. It's okay too. Yeah, unless you're driving. But, you know. right. yeah. <laughs> and and then the other thing that several of us spoke about was. Um, being awake, that the body is suddenly awake when we don't want it to be mm. at 3.30 in the morning. and yeah. Who knows what the body's saying then? Well, yeah. sometimes I know what it is about. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one more comment and then we'll take a break.
Um, my group had a lot of good things to say, a lot of interesting inputs. Um, again, the mind and body connection and um, how the body has a lot of wisdom, but um, at least for me, like the mind um, has its like habits and conditional patterns. And so it kind of like tries to ignore and overrides it. So there's that like conflict. Um, and then, uh, and then also I think Edna had touched upon um, just how society kind of reinforces that, the whole idea of marketing, the whole idea of kind of the sheds of our society. So it's kind of like trying to find that, um, the balance of, you know, um, or just trying to like be more in tune with your body instead of ignoring it. Um, and that slowing down, medita- med- meditation helps. Um, maybe not watching so many commercials. <laughs> and, and also, um, Emily and our group had said that, uh, that like, you know, people that are in your, your hemisphere, the people that you hang out with most can influence you a lot as well. So then there's, that, there's a lot of kind of interesting factors that play into um, uh, not, I guess, uh, maybe interfering with the wisdom of what the body has to tell you. So that's what we talked about. Thank you. So um, let's maybe sh- uh, try to do a, a six or seven minute break. Um, um, there'll be a man at the door announcing how many seconds. No, I'm kidding. So just <laughs> take a break, stretch, go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom, get a drink of water, and uh, we'll ring a bell uh, when it's time to come back.